Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program. It's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. This is Politico's Nerdcast. I'm Scott Bland, your host. This week on the Nerdcast, the president will sign a budget that gives him a little bit of wall money, but much less than he wanted. So... He's going to declare a national emergency so they can move forward with that wall. We know all this because Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell just minutes ago uh, told us so from the Senate floor. It means that the first big conflict between President Trump and congressional Democrats is just about at a close. So what did we learn from, from this first big fight after Democrats took back the House? Plus, the number of women in the 2020 field continues to swell, and the Trump re-election campaign is starting to zero in on a few of them. We're going to have a couple of our national political reporters on to talk us through all the latest developments in the 2020 presidential election. As usual, we're taping this Thursday afternoon, Eastern Time. Glad we waited, given all this uh, emergency talk. So everything is all up to date as of then. All right, let's get started. I want to welcome in our guests. We have here, as usual, senior politics editor Charlie Matessian. Hi, Scott. And from our White House team to talk us through everything going on this afternoon, Nancy Cook. Nancy, how you doing? I'm good. I'm just surprised that this is how everything has turned out. You're you're <laughs> you're practically bouncing with with excitement to to talk us through all this. So I, I really appreciate that. And our first data point to to dive into this segment: eleven hundred. The spending bill making its way through Congress that would keep the government open and give Donald Trump just a fraction of the money he's looking for to build a wall runs 1,100 pages, 1,100 pages. And now we're going to just take a quick moment to read the entire thing line by line. Because you know he has. Exactly. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But we will talk about what's in it and what we've learned from how we got here. Nancy, you've been talking with people at the White House all day, and you were saying just before we sat down to tape that everything was in flux until just a few minutes ago when we we learned that the spending bill would go through, the government would stay open, it would stay funded, but President Trump is going to to announce a national emergency to kind of enable him to grab money from elsewhere in the budget to, to fulfill maybe his top domestic policy priority. Yeah, this has been a high-wire act all week. Um, basically... You know, at the beginning of the week, Trump, uh, people in the White House and at the Office of Management and Budget, the budget agency, were looking at ways to move money around the federal budget um, so that they could get Trump a border wall. That way, they had moved away from the idea of declaring a national emergency because so many Republicans on the Hill and then um, sort of conservatives, legal conservatives who are worried about constitutional powers had sort of said that was too far. So that was Monday. You know, here we are Thursday afternoon. I was talking to White House aides, you know, an hour ago. It was very unclear if Trump would sign the bill. It was very unclear if he would declare a national emergency. It was unclear if he would do the budget route. People just told me they did not know. And Trump basically, uh, you know, they dropped the legislative bill, the over a thousand pages last night at midnight. He was briefed this morning on it around 11 by um, his team that 
uh, works with Congress, so they're called the Legislative Affairs Team, and they briefed him. I think there were some things in it that he didn't like, and he was going back and forth, and it was very unclear if he would sign it. And I think that basically what happened is, you know, Mitch McConnell came out and said, Trump called me, he's going to sign the bill, but he's going to declare a national emergency. Mitch McConnell said he would support the national emergency, which is a change in position for him. A lot of Senate Republicans don't like that idea. But I think that this was a quid pro quo to get Trump to sign the bill and keep the government open. You say a lot of Senate Republicans don't don't like this. A lot of Republicans generally don't like this, right? And you mentioned on the podcast a few weeks ago that this there's um, a lot of people within the president's party who are concerned that, that this sets a a real bad precedent for for them in, in terms of executive power uh, that that a Democratic president could use to for for any number of of their domestic pr- policy priorities in the future. Yeah, it's all manner of people who think that this is a worrisome idea. So political operatives think it's a bad idea because then a Democratic president in a few years, you know, if if they win twenty twenty, for instance, could declare a national emergency over climate change. Or Michael Bennett, who's a potential twenty twenty candidate, said, you know, I would consider climate change and child poverty a national emergency. Um, you know, people who are just hardcore conservatives in the legal community who are into the Constitution think that this is an overreach of executive power. Um, You know, Republican lawmakers are worried about the political blowback. So there's actually like a huge constituency in the Republican Party that does not like this idea. And yet this is the place that we find ourselves in now because Trump really at the end of the day views the border wall as a key message for 2020, a campaign promise that he needs to fill. And you know, everyone be damned. This is what he's going to do to get it. And of course, with one more quick thing, there's there's also the chance that this gets tied up in court and never happens, right? Oh, because of all the things that you just mentioned. Absolutely. And so the the provision that they're going to use is they're going to have the Department of Defense declare the national emergency, and they're going to tap um, funds that the military usually uses in a case of an emergency or war that's used to build like helicopter pads or for, you know, things like that. And so it's this military construction fund. Um, But basically to access those funds, you have to prove that there is an emergency. And so they're going to get all these legal challenges where people are going to say, well, this isn't a real emergency. You know, we haven't had a border wall for two years and we've been fine. So the legal challenges, I would say, are going to be instantaneous. And we expect Trump to sign the bill, sign the funding bills tomorrow and simultaneously declare a national emergency. And then, you know, some flight geek watchers uh, down in Florida have been tweeting that it looks like uh, Air Force One is going to head down to Mar-a-Lago. So Trump will sign this and then spend the weekend in Florida. Very nice. We should all be so lucky. Charlie, this feels in, in some way like th- this is the the end of the prologue to so like the next two years in Washington of Trump's first big clash with a democratically controlled House of Representatives, divided government again, and and we're seeing him kind of pull out that that club from out of the bag that we talked so much about Obama using in the last years of his presidency that that uh, Trump used to to great uh, uh, scrutiny and and. Not necessarily a lot of effectiveness in the early days of his presidency, the executive action. And it, what 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 did we learn from all this about the way the next couple years of policy and politics is gonna is gonna play out? 
Well, I think we learned that Trump wasn't chastened in the least bit by the election results. He didn't pay attention to them in any way, Un- unlike, say, for example, uh, Barack Obama after 2010 or you know George W. Bush uh, after 2006. There was no concession. There was no admission that uh, the party took a beating and maybe needs to rethink some of its uh, initiative, its approach, its governance style. There's none of that. Uh, not, what, what Trump is signaling is nothing is going to change. And I think also he's going to signal what we already knew anyway. I mean, one of the things we talk about a lot on the show is the idea that there are no fixed principles with this president. Everything is transactional. There's no real ideology at the bottom of it. And I mean, I think this is just further evidence of this, that basically what happened, the reason that they didn't have an answer and his aides didn't know what he was going to do on this bill was because he didn't know himself. And then once he assessed what was uh, happening in the echo chamber of the conservative industrial uh, entertainment complex, he realized that this was going to be a political problem for him. And he had to have a solution. He had been played by Nancy Pelosi. He had been painted into a corner. He was going to lose. He had to address the, uh, you know, the the the, uh, the loss he was about to take, and had to address, you know, the beating he was going to take with his base from, you know, conservative uh, commentators. And you even see this. And I'm, I'm looking at the statement now that just came out from Sarah Sanders. You know. She's essentially saying this is this is about the reelection. The president is once again delivering on his promise to build the wall, protect the border and secure our great country. Who's he delivering to? He's delivering on his promise to his base. That is the essential element here. He has to deliver to his base. And the thing is, is that just to follow up on that, even if he even if it gets blocked by courts, That's exactly what I was just about. Right. So even if it gets blocked by courts immediately and is tied up like through the election, I mean, court cases can take forever. Um, he can say, I tried my best to mm-hmm. the base, and it's an excuse. He has a foil. Then it becomes like— Send me back to drain the swamp more so that we can actually make it happen. Right. Send me back and make me president again so I can appoint even more judges so they don't stop me. Um, and so, you know, it just—it it gives him an, a talking—a new talking point that he did everything in his power. Now, with with the national emergency declared and him attempting to do this on the wall, is, is this the end of uh, kind of big— brinksmanship spending fights over over the next couple of years or are there just hurdle more hurdles after hurdles uh, laid out before us this is just the first one this is the first hurdle and you know interestingly this was supposed to be an easy hurdle oh boy yeah I mean appropriators Democrats and Republicans um, had come up with funding bills that they felt really comfortable with in late December you know Trump got talked onto the ledge by conservative commentators and um, some members of the House Freedom Caucus. Um, and so that's why he shut down the government it, back in December. But the the budget fights coming up will be much worse. You know, you need the government needs to raise the debt limit. That's going to be epic. They need to deal with the budget caps. Um, these are going to be much, much bigger fights, I think, because then you'll have, you know, Trump weighing in, Congress weighing in, you know, fiscally conser- fiscal conservative groups. Um, people will be much less aligned. There'll be a, a lot of noise around that. And I think that they'll be much worse. Hmm. This well, is this will be exciting, but it's also going to cause problems within the Republican Party, and it, it's going to create more cracks in the ideological foundation there because all of a sudden they've conceded on everything. What does the party believe anymore? Uh, I thought that they were against the expansive executive use of executive authority that they were so pissed off about during the Obama administration. Well, it turns out, no, they don't really care about that. They don't care about anything anymore. Well, and also, you know, during the Obama administration, they were crowing about the size of the national debt and how big it was and how terrible it was. That tax package that, you know, Republicans passed blew a huge hole in the deficit. Uh, No one seems worried about that at all. 
uh, now that Republicans are in power. And, and so, you know, that will be part of the president's budget that comes out. You know, he has to release his budget. Uh, that will be part of the debt ceiling fight. You know, Republicans will, you know, get religion on fiscal restraint sometimes, but then other times when they've been in power, they just have, you know, blown up the deficit. Well, it's really remarkable to have watched uh, the president's chief chief budget advisor. I mean, I guess now he's chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney, right? But he he was the chief hellraiser on uh, deficits and, and budget issues from the moment he walked in the door in, in Congress in 2011, right, Charlie? You know, I don't understand how some of these people live with themselves and justify it. I mean, for, for somebody who comes in as a hawk, who obsesses over fiscal responsibility and discipline and uh, does it with great drama and flourish throughout their career to them, walk in and toss it all out the door. I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I'm scratching my head. But the president doesn't view debt as a bad thing because he comes from the real estate world where, like, people have huge amounts of debt. And, you know, Treasury Secretary Mnuchin's kind of the same way. You know, they're not really Republican ideologues in that way. They think, like, taking on debt is great. That's what you do in the business world. And so it's it's this huge ideological break from sort of um, more right-leaning House conservatives. And it's it's those people that I that I don't understand. It's the Mulvaney right. crew. It's the House Freedom Caucus. It's it's the folks that have been uh, proselytizing against this for so long. And the minute they get pressed, the minute they have a Republican of their own party, they fold immediately. That's that's really interesting about all this. I mean, it's this this moment feels like it's it's setting up the next couple of years as we've talked about, but it's also setting up beyond that, even kind of looking out into to 2024 potentially of what the Republican Party looks like, like what after Trump is is done with it and kind of what the what the bounds of it it are because it's it's certainly right now it's much different than as you said Charlie than we ever would have expected uh, uh, seven eight years ago uh, when kind of this the march back to power that culminated in Trump winning the White House began with, with House Republicans coming onto the scene. I just hope the Howard Schultz administration goes in a different direction. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I think we got to leave it there. There's no better place to leave it. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us to talk, talk through it. Thanks for having me. And Charlie's going to be staying with us for segment two. All right, on to our next data point, which is five. There are now five female office holders running for president on the Democratic side of the 2020 elections. And as we dig into the presidential race this week, we've got two reporters from our presidential team here. We've got national political reporter Natasha Karecki on the line from Chicagoland. Hey, Natasha. Hey, Scott. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. And in the studio, we have national political reporter Alex Eisenstadt. Alex, good to have you back. Hey there. All right, so let's let's start. Natasha, tell us about this story that you and Charlie collaborated on this week on on what you called a breakthrough moment, those five female candidates. I mean, I, you know, you run through the list and t- and tell us who they are first of all, but also like how we got to to this moment where it, it's not just, you know, it, it's it's shattering like the combined records of all presidential elections past simultaneously. Well, quickly going through the list, we have five office holders for women who are running, four U.S. senators, Elizabeth Warren, Amy Klobuchar, Kirsten Gillibrand, Kamala Harris, and then we've got Chelsea Gabbard, U.S. rep from Hawaii. And, yeah, I mean, I think how this came to be, it, it was it was a natural progression. It started, you know, if you talk to any woman right now, they would say, yes, it started with Hillary Clinton laying the groundwork by winning a major party nomination in 2016. Um, but then it 
it, then you had Trump's election. And after that, I think it's when we really saw things accelerate. You know, you saw these massive women's marches across the country. Um, and, and I think Charlie and I ran across this a lot where you just heard a lot of women who were saying that at that moment, they, they just wanted to get involved in some way, whether it was like, I want to be an activist or I, I want to be part of a campaign. I want to run a campaign. And then finally, I want to run for office. And you had so many more women running for office than you had historic gains in 2018 midterms. And then that brought us to all the announcements that started rolling in this year. And, um, you know, so when, when the 2020 announcement started rolling in, I think it was, you know, it wasn't it was a surprise, um, the, the different names that we saw and the people who stepped forward. But when you, when you took it all together, you had this holy smokes moment, like, wow, there's five women running for president. And, um, you know, one of the women I, I talked to, had, she's a, you know, a pretty big operative who said she knew it all along, but there was just this moment where she stopped and she saw this mock-up of a newspaper and saw the women's faces and was like, it just stopped her in a track. Like, oh mm. my God, we're here. We, we, we are actually here. Um, so that's kind of what I think we were trying to mark in, in, in the story, just the significance of that. Yeah, absolutely. And and you, as you point out, this kind of grew out of what we saw in 2018, right? It's uh, arguably like right. the, women are the, the preeminent force in Democratic Party politics right now. Charlie, uh, get, getting the, the, the co-byline here uh, and, <laughs> and, and j- jumping on the side, there, there's always great material you can't use in a story. And you highlighted one of those nuggets on Twitter this week and this notion that, you know, baby boomers have long thought about whether or if there would be a female presidential candidate running in, in, in a particular year. And now the the question coming into this year and now forever, probably in the future, is not going to be whether or if, it's going to be how many. Right. Uh, you know, now, I, I'm not that I do that much reporting regularly, but now that when I do, I feel, you know, I'm reminded of how much good stuff you have in the notebook. So I tried to unload some of it on Twitter. And, and what I put out there was, I talked to Celinda Lake, who's a top Democratic strategist and pollster. And she's, she's somebody who sort of recognized in the Democratic Party as the top person when it comes to uh, electing women candidates and, and being familiar with uh, women's issues as they relate to politics. Politics. And and Celinda said something really interesting to me that wasn't in, I wasn't able to, to uh, get in the story with Natasha and it was she was talking about the impact of of this year and how different it is and and her point was that uh, was that it was very generational that in the past uh, the baby boomer generation was accustomed to maybe a woman candidate running her point was going forward th- from this year henceforth. Uh, Gen Xers and millennials will always expect many women candidates. So this was the breakthrough moment where you will, you probably will never again make a big deal out of having a woman candidate running for president. There will always be multiple candidates. And, and one of the reasons Celinda was saying, and, uh, and, and this I heard from another source as well, was in some ways it, it's kind of funny because it's so disrespectful of the president that what they hear over and over, people that work, the train women candidates at every level uh, are hearing that women are saying, well, geez, if if that guy can do it, I can I can do it. <laughs> and so they the, the kinds of things that might have served as barriers uh, in the past to, to people's thinking about running for office have been obliterated because their regard for the president is so low. Mm. That's really interesting. So now, Alex, take us take us on the other side of the ledger. Um, on the Republican side, you did some digging and, and published a story this morning on what the Trump campaign 
makes of all these Democrats who are running, including all all these uh, these women who are running. And there, there's two threads here. There's one you kind of dug into who the campaign sees as Trump's most formidable potential opponents for re-election, but then also who's already right now attracting the attention of the president. Why don't we start there? It's like who, who's who's the the president's campaign focused on at the moment? So uh, of the of the people who've who've announced the campaign. Uh, itself has made the determination to focus right now on on Booker, Harris, and and Warren, uh, and it believes that those three of those who've declared are are the most viable. And so so this focus really is going to manifest itself uh, for now. And, and this is a very early stage of, of the campaign, but for now it's going to focus uh, uh, mostly on on opposition research. A uh, and B, I think you are going to see the campaign. Not, I'm not talking about the the president's Twitter feed, but the campaign proper itself. Uh, occasionally putting out uh, statements um, attacking them, and so you saw that effort start over the weekend. Uh, they put out a statement going after Elizabeth Warren ahead of her uh, announcement, and so uh, you're likely to see other things sort of develop uh, in the months to come. And are are those are those the three? No matter who else gets in, are those the three that the Trump campaign sees as as overall the 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 most troublesome potential general election opponent, or, or are there others uh, out there who maybe haven't gotten in yet who they're also focused on? Right. So so it's just the, the, the of those three the, of of all the people who've basically uh, declared. Uh, but actually, uh, talking with with the with the campaign, and I, I can tell you that uh, the president himself has told multiple people that he sees Joe Biden as uh, the the biggest threat Mm. uh, to him in in a general election. But at the same time, the White House, for now, uh, has has kind of made the determination that Biden could never get through uh, a Democratic primary. They think he's too far to the right. They think he's too centrist. Um, So you have the president who's going around telling people that that he sees Biden as someone who would appeal to uh, a wider swath of voters than other Democrats who, who are in the race but uh, or who are looking to run. Uh, but there's really this belief in, in the White House has really become convinced that that the Democratic primary is going to become uh, very much pulled to the left and, and governed by uh, sort of liberal left leftward forces. And this has really shaped this calculation and this PR strategy that we've seen emerge over the last week or two, starting with the State of the Union and then the El Paso rally that followed it, that the president and the White House, they're going to go after um, sort of the Democratic Party as, as being a party of socialists. And you've sort of seen over the last several weeks, the White House start to sharpen this message. That's very interesting. You, you know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of uh, kind of what we heard about how the Clinton campaign was seeing the Republican primary shaping up in, in 2016. But obviously that that didn't work out for them particularly well, right? Obviously, Trump still still ended up winning the election. Natasha, can you can you t- take us back into the the what these Democratic campaigns are doing right now in terms of uh, building up early early support and where are they? I mean, are they trying to tap into that same energy of the uh, uh, from from female voters that, that we saw boost so many female candidates in in 2018 to try and get to the point where where they're going to be the ones taking on Trump? Or is it is it uh, is is it too early? Is is no one kind of s- segmenting or, or restricting that that much yet and it's it's kind of more broad-based conversations with voters at this point i think it's a little early but i mean warren who's probably a good barometer because she's most she's probably done the most events and, and the most events i've like personally seen um but it's been interesting to watch her because she hasn't really taken she hadn't taken trump on 
really. She sort of mentioned him in, in her um, in her big announcement speech on Saturday. But then Sunday in Iowa, she she was like, he might not be president, you know, in 2020. And so it was it was an interesting pivot for her um, to take him on more directly. I, I was really interested um, in what Alex just said because, um, you know, when you hear some of the Trump people talking, they're all like, oh, they – they're, Trump's dying to run against Elizabeth Warren. You know, she's such a joke. She's so far to the left. And um, so it's interesting that mm, actually they're a little worried about her. Um, there's a lot of organization behind her. And um, she's she's a really strong online presence right now, digital presence. presence. Mm-hmm. She's, she's just got, I mean, Charlie and I were talking about this yesterday, she just got 20,000 people to sign on to, to a petition in like a couple of hours about publicizing um, tax. Your, you know your tax forms. Um, so I, I think I think the different candidates are still trying to figure out how to handle Trump. Um, and, and we've seen with Booker, um, he's not he's he's going to try to step away as much as he can. So everyone loves each other. But it's also <laughs> interesting to me that he is one of the people that Republicans are worried about the most. That that surprises me. Kamala Harris does not surprise me just because she had such you know a strong rally, a big you know, shock and awe presence in the beginning. Um, and that's the kind of thing that, that gets, you know, Trump's attention. Natasha, something that occurred to me as you were just describing that when you when you're going to these uh, early events for Warren, I guess, especially for Warren, do they look any different to you than, than the a typical kind of political event crowd that you've covered in the past? Is is the is the you know, are the attendees or the people interested in these candidates uh, skewing more female as well? I just did Massachusetts and New Hampshire this weekend um, versus Iowa. Now, you know, these are not the most diverse populations in the world. So, I, 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 you know, I take all this with a grain of salt um, in general. But th- there were, I would say it was very uh, heavy on women represented there um, and, and on both counts. And, I, you know, I was trying to talk to people just for the story. And, I, I mean, I could easily have talked to 100 people, no problem, um, who are all women. Uh-huh. That's, that's um, so, really yeah, interesting. Yeah, there's a lot of women coming out, you know. But, you know, it, 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 there's always just Democrats coming out. I mean, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't necessarily say it's like all, you know, women with the, with the sure. pink hats and stuff. I mean, it, it's just like in both of those early states, it's, and we've talked about this before, but it's, it's people who are just ready for 2020 to start and want to see the candidates, whoever it is, coming through. They want to see them, vet them, and they, they're just dying to vote Trump out of office. Mm-hmm. And then, meanwhile, Alex, you know, the Trump campaign is is starting up this machinery to to prevent that from happening and really revving it up in a in a big way early. They're spending a ton of money on Facebook advertising to to try and try and build their donor list. They're, the Trump's starting to to get around, go around the country, El Paso, and so on and so forth. Right. There's there's also a ton of hiring going on. They've been doing uh, a bunch of interviews for a range of positions, anywhere from communications and and, and a press shop, which is something they want to build out. Uh, and there's obviously been some criticism of the White House for not really having much of a substantial uh, press shop, according to, to, to some people. Uh, and then then they're also looking to hire a, a big national, have a big national um, field, field presence. One, one thing I'll, I'll, I'll add, though, to this is that um, there's really, at least in their mind, there's no one sort of prohibitive Democratic frontrunner. It's sort of this big, uh, massive, undefined field. And uh, to some extent, that that's, uh, that's something that has kind of heartened Republicans, uh, who obviously just had this devastating midterm election, they, that they feel like 
p- perhaps uh, uh, the president's in a, in a better position now than he was, um, uh, you know, a few months ago. But at the same time, uh, there's, there, it also makes things challenging because who knows who they're going to be running against uh, once this once this Democratic primary process gets held. And also, who knows who's going to be getting into the field before the first Democratic debate in, in, in June? Absolutely. That's still a really open question, right, Charlie? I mean, we, we could potentially still have half the candidates who we're going to be talking about at the end of the year still not actually in the race at this point. It's only February. Yeah. And, and we've got at least three big name candidates who uh, could very well drag it out as long as they want because of their name recognition. And that's Bernie, that's Michael Bloomberg, and that's Joe Biden. I mean, Bernie uh, shows every indication of uh, being ready to go very, very soon. Uh, Biden has been dragging it out for months. and It doesn't matter. They have close to universal uh, name recognition in the, in the party. They've been in the, uh, the public arena for many, many years. They've, uh, they're known to everyone. Their stances are known to everyone. And all of them have a- access to uh, resources. You know, Bloomberg can spend, has more money than God. Uh, Joe Biden, I don't think, will you know uh, struggle to raise money. And Bernie uh, mints money with the uh, small uh, donor online uh, machine he's got. And so they they have the option to do that. And then you also have Steve Bullock, who is the Montana governor, who's waiting till the end of the legislative session. Uh, he gets a, a lot of high praise from from people as a potential dark horse when he gets in. Uh, it, you know, it's, it seems like a heavy lift because, you know, he has a long way to go to get recognized uh, outside of Montana. But uh, people say uh, great things about him. And so, yeah, I mean, we could see a bunch of people who could alter the dynamic in significant ways. Yeah. And and didn't even mention Beto O'Rourke, right? Who's, Who's kinda, that? Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hanging out there as well. So a lot a lot still to uh, to to sift through and we'll be we'll be following it every week. Uh, Alex, thanks so much for coming thank in. Thank you. And Natasha, thanks for joining us. Thanks. And Charlie, thank you for being here as always. Scott, thanks for being you. And of course, as usual, a big thank you to all of you, our listeners, for tuning in this week. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our illustrator is Bill Cookman. If you like the Nerdcast, and if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And remember, if you'd like to be the lucky person reading these credits in a future episode, just shoot an email to nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love to have you on the show. Once again, thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next week. You guys are so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Is that going to get edited out? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> <laughs>